Turn, if you will, to 1 Corinthians chapter 8. I went through a little battle a few weeks ago about continuing to preach 1 Corinthians because I didn't think chapter 7 had anything to say and had plenty to say. And the Lord just gave me a little reminder as I got on my knees and said, I'll pick the subject, you preach it. I didn't ask you to write the Bible. I asked you to preach it. So sometimes I come to chapters uh, that I don't get as whipped up about, like uh, you ought to be single. You know, I've already violated it. I'm married. Pray for me. Uh, and uh, it's an interesting thing, but I've seen throughout the years when I submit my opinion and myself to the authority of God's word, he never has any problem talking. It's getting me to shut up, to shut up about what I think is important. The Bible's what's important, isn't it? So, well, that's not relevant. No, what you think is not relevant. We're people of a book. We're people who say we submit all of our human opinions to a divine opinion, right? Now, you know we're lying through our teeth because we usually go around the word if we can because we're much smarter than God on many things. And uh, only after we have failed do we think, I better read that again, like David bringing back the ark. Maybe I better do this the way God said. So I'm saying that just to warm up. We're going to talk about a section here. 1 Corinthians 8.1 goes all the way through 11.1. He's dealing with one subject. He's dealing with the subject of idolatry. And idolatry permeated uh, this culture. Uh, Corinth just reeked with idolatry. Uh, the parties were at the temple. Uh, the prostitutes were at the temple. Uh, the family meetings were at the temple. Uh, daily sacrifices. Uh, and, of course, immoral religious practices. All this stuff. They were temple-bound, temple-bound. And uh, these people, of course, are being saved. And as they come out of it, there are struggles going on in the church uh, over several issues. One, should I have dinner with an unbeliever that is eating meat that had been sacrificed at the temple? Is that okay to do? Because their theology said that the meat had been demonized because when they offered these offerings, of course, they're offering them to real gods in their mind. And there's also a demon behind the idol. So many times they thought that the meat some way pacified the demon so you would take the curse off their home. If they weren't able to have children, uh, this God could curse infertility, could curse uh, lack of finances. So very uh, loaded with religious meaning. Can I go to dinner with an unbeliever and then to serve me a plate of food that's already been offered to the God, goddess of Aphrodite? Can I do that as a believer? And he deals with it. Two, in the offerings that went on in that day, every offering was split up three ways. Uh, you brought your offering. One-third of the offering went to the God and was consumed. One-third of the offering 
went to the priest who made the sacrifice. And what he would do, he'd get so much meat in a day, he would put it in the temple butcher shop and sell it for a profit. It was given to him. But the best meat went for a low price, so the place to buy your meat was at the temple butcher shop. Can I buy my meat at the temple butcher shop? And he dealt with that in chapter 10. And then, thirdly, I was taken and given a third of it. And what normally happened, you'd throw a party at the temple precinct with your family, whoever came up with you. So there'd be a lot of partying, a lot of eating, all this going on, that one-third part of the sacrifice. So it consumed their way of life. They couldn't escape it. People having them for dinner, hey, I bought this at the temple. Uh, people going to temple. People talking about the temple. It, it permeated their life. Now, in the church there, he's going to deal with this problem. And in chapter 8, he's going to show you there's two groups in the church how, and how they're coping with this whole practice of idolatry. One are the arrogant who have superior knowledge, they claim. The other are the weak, those who are really have all kinds of conscientious problems with the temple and with what you do there. Chapter 9, Paul is saying, he's really addressing the arrogant, who say, my knowledge entitles me to all the insights of my knowledge, and I get all these privileges, even if I practice them to the hurt of a weak brother. It doesn't matter. I know better. I'm going to do as I please in this area. I go to the temple. I know there's no idol. I eat the meat. It's the best. And they disregard the influence they're having on that weak brother. Paul says in chapter 9, we've been called not to live for privilege, but to live in love. And love makes you sacrifice for who you love. We're not living based upon our rights. We're living on the basis of the love responsibility. We must be careful how we influence other people. So he, he addresses that. Chapter 10, he's going to say, Israel failed on a freedom march. And you can have all the freedoms you want and fail dastardly. They did. And so they didn't fall under Pharaoh. They fell on a freedom march coming out of Egypt. And they fell to the lust of their heart. And then he goes on and gives some more instruction about, can I go to the butcher shop? What do I do when I eat with an unbeliever? And then he says, finally, be sure that whatever you do, do to the glory of God. I want to look at three things today in chapter 8, three points I want you to get. He is warning the arrogant believer. So we deal with the arrogant believer and the dangers that they, they live with. Two, the weak Christian, their danger. What is the danger of a weak believer? And thirdly, the Christ-Paul model for how these two can get along or how we get along in the church. What is the Christ uh, Apostle Paul model, because Paul says in 11.1, whatever he says, watch, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. 
And in the middle of this issue, he gives chapter 9, the model he gave for winning other people, getting along with people with scruples, weakness. Don't you hate to be around a bunch of ignorant people and you have to be aware of all their hang-ups? Paul is saying, how I survived Christians with hang-ups. What I did to get along with Jews and their scruples, Greeks and their scruples, this group and their scruples. Let me tell you how I live. Let's consider, first of all, the arrogant believer's uh, danger. Watch what he says. Now about food sacrifice to idols. Now, what is it, why does he bring now about? Who, they wrote him a letter. They asked questions about it. The issue is food offered at the temple. It's really not about food. It's about food offered to an idol. So don't, this isn't Romans 14. This is idolatry food. Food offered in a religious ceremony. So get that. That's the key here. Food offered at the temple, not kosher or non-kosher. That's not what he's dealing with. If I've offered food to an idol at the temple, what am I to do in regards to this? And Paul's going to address, do I eat it or don't I? Do I go to temple or don't I? Uh, do, do I embolden somebody to do it? So that's what he's dealing with. We know that we all possess knowledge. And this was the claim of the Corinthians. They always punted, we know everything. We know more than the cross. We know more than the Spirit. They, they were always an arrogant bunch at Corinth. And so they had said, we know too much to be bothered by this. Then he says, let me tell you something about knowledge. It puffs up. Do you see it? But love builds up. The man who thinks he knows something does not yet know as he ought to know. But the man who loves God is known by God. So then about eating food sacrificed to idols. We know that an idol is nothing at all in the world. And there is no God but one. Right on. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, he's admitting this, all kinds, they're not in reality there, but among human beings, and you just need to visit a Hindu country where there's thousands, he said, we can see there's all kinds of gods and lords in the minds of people and in the religious pantheon. Yet for us, there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things came and for whom we live. And there's but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. What is he saying? Uh, you claim knowledge. I'm afraid your knowledge has had an ill effect on you. I think you may be struggling with arrogance. You become puffed up. Knowledge is rather dangerous, you know. Did you know the wisest creature God ever made was the first one to rebel against him? The wisest. See, one of the three idols that men bow before, Jeremiah 9 says, we worship knowledge, we worship wealth, and we worship power. 
He said, that's what we worship. Those are the three categories. If you give a man a money, he can buy all the women and all the toys he wants. But second, when he steps in the room, when he knows everything, all eyes are directed to him. I dominate because I know more than the rest of you dummies. And then power, if I'm not smart, but I've got a bigger gun and I'm a better shot, who cares? I just killed Einstein. I'll eliminate all my competition. I'll reduce it to me. Whoever's got the biggest guns, I forget which, uh, I think Napoleon said, God is always on the side of the army with the biggest guns. So we worship power, we worship money, and we worship knowledge. And he warns us in the church, if the church is ever run on the knowledge base, we're headed for destruction because it breeds pride and arrogance. I think, who, the wisest creature God ever made fell through his wisdom and beauty. And then let's interview the wisest man that ever lived. Let's see what wisdom did for him. Solomon introduced me to your wife. Thousand show up. <laughs> this room was supposed to hold 1,200 people. This room would barely hold all the women he married. And this is a wise man. You think about that. You can't get along with one. He wasn't trying to get along because he just kept him out there and just whistled number nine when he wanted to see one. Hey, who's 13? Bring her out. I got to meet her again. They were for alliances politically. But just think of, he, he violated everything Moses said a king shouldn't do. He told the kings of Israel, don't multiply horses. Well, why not multiply horses? You'll become reliant on them. You're a nation of donkeys. I want you to own donkeys and not horses. Horses are for Egypt and Assyria. Wow, God, we can't get away in battle if we don't have a fast horse. Isaiah 30, you don't need a fast horse when I'm the captain. He's always trying to get them to rely on me, not on what you can do. See, wisdom doesn't have a good track record. If Solomon's the best and Satan is the best, and he tells us when we're picking leadership, be sure you don't get a novice or he'll be puffed up with pride and fall into the condemnation of the devil. When we're looking for leadership, the last thing we need is someone that the position goes to their head. We're calling you to work in humility, not to pride. So knowledge, uh, he's not impressed with. There's something about knowledge that is scary. Let me ask you, if you were in great need, what kind of person would you rather be in their presence? A person who knows it all or someone who loves you deeply? I think of the parable of the Good Samaritan. The question was asked, who is my neighbor? Jesus, in that marvelous ability of his, he starts telling a story. Uh, a man went down from Jericho, and all of a sudden he fell among thieves. He was beat up. He was laying up next to the road. And all of a sudden, a Levite came by. And then a priest, obviously, been up to temple, been up to Jerusalem. They're on their way home. And, and they see the man, and, and they know the need. They know the man's been beat up. They, they know, and they went on the other side. That's what it says. They went on the other side. Knowledge walked right on by. Knowledge. 
That's where some of the worst Christians we've got, they know far more than they obey. They're educated beyond their obedience. But they win all arguments. They've got the book of Revelation mastered. They know Daniel, and they know the name of the Antichrist. But you can starve around them. Because love got involved with the man, stooped down, poured oil, brought healing, rented him a room, and of all things, he was of the wrong racial ethnicity to even be doing this. He was a low-down, filthy, rotten, stinking, we hate Samaritans. He didn't ask about what ethnicity the man was. He just said, he's bleeding, he's been robbed, he's been beat, I want to pour the oil in. You can die in the midst of knowledge. Knowledge never set anyone free alone. Now, God's not ignorant. He's omniscient. But he didn't send us an encyclopedia to die for us. And I'll have to say, when you got saved, he didn't first have you take an IQ test. See, many of you have been on the dean's list, but there's two lists. Those not passing, those passing. And he said in first chapter of Corinthians, by the way, when God put his love on you, decided to save you, he already knew he's scraping the bottom of the barrel. Not many of you were hardly worth saving. Some people will say, I was worth so much, God sent his son. No, 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 no. Forget that. That's wrong. That's, that's apostate theology. You weren't worth that much. He loved that much. He loved that much that he'd save something that was nearly worthless. That, there's the emphasis. He, he loves that great, but he said, oh, I better save them while I can. There's just few geniuses around. I better get them on my side. Oh, are you kidding? You were captive to pagan lust, pagan decisions. Your life was a wreck. So he's telling these Corinthians, oh, we now have got the super knowledge crowd in the church. And they are telling me they know everything. Matter of fact, they're monotheists. They say there's only one God. Hallelujah. I've been saying it since Deuteronomy 6. Hear, O Israel, there's one God. I've been saying this for Good. They're right. And, and they're, they're also more than monotheists. They're Trinitarian. They move on. They say, and Jesus is Lord or Yahweh, or Kyrios, which was a blasphemous statement to a Jew and to a pagan world. There's only one Lord for us. That is Jesus Christ. By the way, folks, being just believing in one God will send you to hell. The demons believe it, and it doesn't save them. We are Trinitarian. We believe in God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, and when you want to know God's name, read Matthew 28, 18, baptizing them in the name singular of Father, Son, Holy Spirit. God's got one name. It's called Father, Son, Holy Spirit. We're Trinitarian. And some of you don't, you don't have that clear. No, no, no. Uh, the Muslims are monotheistic. The Jews are monotheistic. Uh, what's their problem? Don't tell me Jesus is Lord. 
No, no, no. I, I just believe in one God. We do too. He's one God in essence, nature, and attributes, but he's manifested in three divine persons. I go to the Father through the Son by the Holy Spirit. When I pray, I pray to, I don't pray to God. I pray to one I call Father. He told you to call me Father, and that's one of my pet peeves. I'm sick of you folks praying to ambiguity. Pray if he's not your father, you don't get to talk to him. If he's your father, call him father. Are you with me? See, my father's name, Lawrence John Howard. Ask me how many times I ever asked Lawrence for anything. You see that little indentation right there? I can never call my dad Lawrence. Why not? That's his name, not to you. Well, 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 well hey, you, your birth record says Lawrence, but to you, buddy, I'm dad. And he was a parent in the day the dad was still in charge. Not the kids. Come here. You call me father if you ever expect to get anything. Why don't you start calling your God Father. Is he your father? Through one Lord, Jesus Christ. So they were right on, man. They were, Paul said, hallelujah, you got it. But I've got a problem with you. What is it? We're theologically correct a lot. So were the rabbis that crucified Christ when they got him sentenced. They didn't want to do it on the Sabbath. They knew all the rules. You have all this knowledge and still be misbehaving. Uh, let me talk to the problem. Let me get right to it, he says. Uh, I'm going to walk you through and talk to you about the weaker brother. Watch verse 8. But not everyone knows this. Not everybody's as smart as you. Some people are so accustomed to idols that when they eat such food, they think of it as having been sacrificed to an idol. And since their conscience is weak, it is defiled. But food does not bring us near to God. We are no worse if we do not eat and no better if we do. I know that, but we've got believers with weak conscience. And what is a weak conscience? What is conscience? Conscience is made up of, think of it if you were a scale in your heart that operates this way. A scale that on one side is knowledge and the other side is action. And as long as I act within what I know, my conscience never bothers me, okay? That's why you don't want to find out the speed limit. Now, remember, the policemen know it, and so does my wife. But see, I, if, if I don't ask, I can't say I broke the law in my mind. My conscience is free to speed. But the law and Carolyn... Uh, they know, and I'm reminded, it's one of our domestic quarrels all the time. I, I'm a liberated Christian. I feel liberty just to go. My goal is to get there. Her goal is, uh, you're five miles over the speed limit. Carolyn, don't tell me. My conscience has not bothered me. Because she says that time, how can you be a pastor and go five miles over? I said, it's easy. Don't look at the speed limit. But it's a, it's a domestic quarrel and sin. So, uh, anyway, uh, he's dealing with these people that uh, 
It bothers her conscience. Conscience is, uh, if you think something's wrong, it is wrong for you. Now, your knowledge may be wrong. Your knowledge may be wrong, but you've got to live within your knowledge, right or not. Right or not. Uh, and that's where, like, legalism is so, uh, keep you guilty all the time. Uh, I grew up with a lot of, you know, I was legalistic in my early Christianity without ever knowing it because I was so in love with God, I'd stand on my head. It didn't bother me. You make all the rules. Well, I'd, I'd do them. Dress standards and all this, where we go, where we couldn't go. I, I really didn't mind it because, hey, uh, whatever, if this is part of the Christian life, good. But as you, you know, start growing, you thought, man, there's a lot of things I could have done. I, I could have done that. I could have, yeah. So as your knowledge increases, you get to do more things. Maybe that'll get you to Bible study. Study your Bible, and you get to do more things. Gotcha. I knew you'd go for that. There's some things that's been a sin, and if you just get more knowledge, you can boogie in that area and never be bothered. So you need to study the Bible to see how many more liberties you've got, right? Well, uh, but this believer, this weak believer needs to know that food has nothing to do with your status with God. It neither commends you nor condemns you. So they've got all these hang-ups about food, the idols, and of course the Jews have the kosher rules and the Galatians 2 problem, can we eat? food, you know, all of that. And he said, hey, in this dispensation, you could eat anything. Eat, eat it, and we are. First Timothy 4, eat anything you give thanks for. And that will limit you on some foods. If you've seen some of the cooking I've seen, it's hardly to be thankful. Uh, and I'm not talking about my home. I've done fine. Uh, then watch this. Uh, be careful, however, that the exercise of your freedom does not become a stumbling block to the weak. Well, who is claiming the freedom? It's the super arrogant crowd. We know, so we can do. They said, well, I just want to warn you, be sure of your influence. Uh, there are weak believers in the church there that have scruples and a weak conscience. There's some things they can't do. And I'm just telling you, don't you use your influence to get them to do something against their conscience, and they would sin. For if anyone with a weak conscience sees you who have this knowledge eating in an idol's temple, won't he be emboldened to eat what has been sacrificed to idols? I mean, look at this. You guys drive along, you see me at Antler's Bar. Come on in, man. I'm having devotions. It, it doesn't fit. It doesn't fit. Come on in. I can eat anywhere. I can have lunch anywhere I want. Come on over to the Playboy Club. They really serve a great hamburger. Wait, wait, wait. Now, you might be able to have lunch at Antlers, but what is a weak believer, a new believer that can... I, that's where I used to spend all my weekends. I've been blasted there many a time. Is the pastor hooked on it? No, I, they got a great lunch on Fridays. $7.95. Hey, I, I didn't eat lunch when I went there. I got blasted. I got so drunk, I, had, I didn't know where I was. So I got evil associations. 
And here these guys are saying, I'm going to the idol's temple. Why would you want to eat at the idol's temple? The best food in town. Best food. Now, it's going to wind up in chapter 10 telling them, I forbid you to even go to an idol's temple. But he's arguing. He's being diplomatic with them right now. He's trying to show them a greater principle. If you embolden a brother to do something because of your action that he has scruples about, and he says, well, brother so-and-so did it. I guess I can do it. He said, you're going to have a ruinous effect on that believer. And watch what he says. So this weak brother, by the way, he never condemns the weak brother. He never says there's something wrong with him. He's going after the guy that claims to know so much. He never does rebuke the weak brother. Oh, you got all kinds of hang-up. You're messed up. He never says that. He says, I expect the strong to look out for the weak. By the way, he never calls these guys strong. He calls them arrogant. You think you know so much. If you know so much, why aren't you having a better effect on fellow believers? Watch. So this weak brother for whom Christ died is destroyed. The word is ruined, basically. Ruined because he sins. Uh, Is destroyed by your knowledge. When you sin against your brothers in this way and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. I'm holding you accountable for your influence. When you do this, you're not only sinning against them. You're sinning against their Savior. This is pretty serious stuff. Christ takes it personal when you do those things that encourages another believer to do something that violates your conscience. You know, it's about like a lot of you, when you started smoking, you probably would have never done it had someone not talked you into it. Take, give you a dare. Come on, just do it once. Just do it once. Try a little booze. Just once. Come on. And somebody coaching you. You didn't really want to do it. You hadn't even thought. But they coached you, and this is the effect here. Come on, man. Get it about to sit down. Eat with me here at the temple of Aphrodite. By the way, uh, let me teach you some theology while they serve the food and while they do a little, uh, you know, idolatrous service in the background. Because we know better. These guys are idiots. They're not real gods here. Uh, we serve the true God. And it doesn't matter. Come on. But, but I, I have hang-ups. I said I'd never go back to the idol's temple. I said I was breaking. Come on, man. Let me teach you the word here at the idol's temple. Let's have devotions together. Okay. I'll do it. And then while they're there, right in the middle, they said, you know what? I feel the Spirit's grieving in me. What's wrong? I I felt I shouldn't be here, and I wouldn't have done it, but you told me it was okay, and I'm doing it, but the Spirit's saying it's not okay, and I feel miserable. I've got to go home. I've got to get alone. I've sinned. You've sinned? Come on, boy. You're just ignorant. You're just ignorant. Catch up. Paul doesn't go after the ignorant. He goes after the wiseacre. You know so much? If your knowledge doesn't make you care about the influence you're having on a weak brother, you don't know anything. You're a danger to the flock. Know everything. You ought to hang around Bible colleges and uh, seminaries and see the arrogance that it can breed. 
guys that know what churches owe them, how much they're worth, how much pay they deserve, that would morse one toilet if they had to, to be in ministry because they're worth so much. They're not worth spit, and God has a way of putting them on the shelf. Knowledge isn't how the church has got built. It's been the love of God that has found people in weakness, ignorance, sin. Nothing did they bring to the table. Look how ignorant you were of God the day he saved you. So you know you didn't get in by brilliance. So let us not despise those that we meet who know less. You know, I made a journey from the group that I grew up with that I loved dearly. Uh, to not love them would be not to love Christians. But I, I, my theology changed, but my love for them didn't. And when I first came into this knowledge, guess what I wanted to do? I wanted to lead all of them into especially the doctrines of grace. I didn't care if they cast out demons, talked in tongues, and had visions. I didn't mind that. Go. But I want to show you that God will keep you saved forever, that uh, how great the... I want to get to those subjects that we didn't hear a lot. We knew about tithing. We knew about the Holy Spirit. We knew about gifts. But we were so blind on so many of the truths I love in Romans. And I thought, I'm going to go back and teach this. And by the time I did, I started offending because they didn't believe that or they didn't believe my take. And so I finally started Valley because I wanted to take the knowledge and I wanted to get it to them. I, I may have a doctorate, but my goal has always been common folks. Now, most of you aren't common. You're uncommon. <laughs> because I was raised by a um, man out of Cherokee County that was a fourth-grade educated man, a plowboy who fled a mean father, and he loved the Bible, and he never had anybody from seminary ever teach him. He just grew up with ignorant preachers. They loved God, but they didn't know much Bible. And I thought, if somebody could teach my old daddy, he's got the IQ, he'd get it, if we'd quit preaching to the clouds and put the cookies on the lower shelf where the children can get them. You see, you put the cookies so high, nobody but adults get them. I usually put mine on top of the refrigerator when I know the grandchildren are coming. <laughs> it's a little secret. I've also hid my candy in my uh, dresser drawer, and my girls found it, and the ants had gotten to my seized candy, and they remind me of greed. But I, why give it all up with one visit? I could make that baby last a week. But the ants beat, beat me to it. See, I think... You can know the word. I think you could understand predestination if someone explained it to you. If I quit treating you like a dummy, you're not so dumb you can't learn. That's my philosophy. That's why I came to this church. There was no church. That's why I came to an empty hall. God, I'm going to teach your people the word. I started women's Bible study when no one in conservative circles I knew of, pastors never taught women because you know they don't quite have as much of the Holy Spirit. This stuff is for the men at seminary. I found out the women were outside the park. They got it so quick. No wonder the men don't like to be in the same classroom with them because they're so sharp. That's why we've got to train women. 
I think two-thirds of the body of Christ are women. Shouldn't we be training women? Thank you, Kevin. Shouldn't we be training women? And we got so many dumb women because they grew up on soaps and grew up on trashy romance novels, and nobody in the church thought they were any better than to be putting on the annual fellowship meal. They got the Holy Spirit. They've got the anointing. They can learn anything we're big enough to teach. They've got minds. I know it. I know it. We need to multiply women that can teach the Word in this church. You're not just to have babies. You've got a mind and a heart, and God knows we need godly women pouring the Word of God into other women today. We need you desperately. So here Paul says, you guys, when you sin against your brothers, you're wounding their conscience. You're sinning against Christ. You're having a ruinous effect. And he's going to complete this idolatry thing. He's going to lay down the law in chapter 10 for sure. But first of all, he's dealing with attitudes. Do we care about what kind of effect we have on each other? Would you stop doing anything if you thought it was stumbling or ruining a believers or emboldening them to do things that they didn't believe they should? I'll give you a, an illustration that it seems so out of date because today our legalism isn't our battle. We do everything. Our problem is we don't know what we should. We don't have any rules. Uh, but I, I know when I first started the church, I remember getting my sister Hazel aside, and I said, oh, by the way, sis, you can start wearing makeup. We're not in uh, holiness circles anymore. I told my wife, start wearing makeup. You know, I found out, I, I increased my knowledge that you can wear all the makeup you want and still go to heaven. I was taught that was sin, worldliness. So, you know, I wanted to catch some women up to date in my family, so I told Carolyn, please buy some makeup. I think you're ready for it. You know, I just go ahead. <laughs> Knowledge, knowledge has increased. Go ahead. Uh, and then, then I thought I needed to catch Hazel up. And I said, sis, you know what? We've been under all these rules and the strictness and stuff. Uh, you can't wear makeup, and I just want to let you know. She said, well, thank you for the permission. <laughs> and then she grabbed my collar. I don't need to go through you to find out if I can wear it or not. Will it bother you if I don't? Well, I don't want you to be a legalist. I said, will it bother you if I don't? <laughs> See, it's, it's when you get knowledge, you'll judge all the folks that can't. Yeah, I'm in the crowd. We do everything because we're free. We know, and your impact is zero. I knew people who'd give up the silliest things because they were living for impact. They weren't living for their rights. Whatever it takes to have an impact, I'll give it up for Jesus. Would you give up anything for Jesus? And that's where Paul is going. Now watch what he says, verse 13. Therefore, if what I eat causes my brother to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again so that I will not cause him to fall. That's my stance. I'll give up whatever it takes to give up that I might have an impact and an influence for the gospel. He said, oh, that's a little ridiculous. Follow me, chapter 9. I'll preach it later, but I want you to get his argument. This is exactly where he's going. Watch. Verses 1 
through uh, 11. Am I not an apostle? Uh, am I not a worker of God? Well, I've given up the right to be married, and I've given up the right to pay when I was among you because I'm not interested in getting my privileges. I'm interested in preaching the gospel. Verse 12, if others have this right of support from you, shouldn't we have it all the more? But we did not use this right. What right? The right to be paid when we were at Corinth. Well, how did you feed yourself? I was taught as a rabbi to have a trade. I'm a leather worker, and I worked with Aquila and Priscilla. I fed myself. I paid my own bills. I never let you Corinthians give me one rotten dime because you thought I was in it for the money. But I'm out to have an impact. I'll preach this gospel without money. He goes on. He says in verse 15, But I've not used any of these rights. Verse 19, though I am free and belong to no man, I make myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. To the Jews, I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law to win them. To those having, not having the law, I became like one not having the law, though I'm not free from God's law, but under Christ's law, so that I might win them. To the weak, I became weak. Have you ever done that? Have you ever gotten weak to reach the person you were trying to reach? Or were you too busy reminding them of how superior you were? Tell me, when did you ever get weak to have an impact? Ask yourself. I ask me. And you say, well, show me somebody. I got a Savior that became weak. He emptied himself of all the external privileges and uh, a display of deity, and he died the death of a criminal, took the form of a servant, took the form of a man. Oh, listen to me, saints. Christianity wasn't founded at a university. It was founded by a God that was willing to get weak enough to die so that he might die for weak folks, sinful people, rebellious people, God, deliver us from arrogance that says, I'm living for rights. You know, I am a doctor. So what? You know I know a lot. Why don't you act like it? Did you ever hear your dad say that? If you've got any brains, act like it. And right now, it's in doubt whether you do, but I'm going to give you a chance. I tell you, I have no use for arrogant Christianity. That's why I'd rather be a poor boy preacher than to be in the highest church with thousands and millions of dollars. Let me go to the folks that need him the most. Let me tell you this. When you go in a room, if you were Jesus, you know what he'd do? If Jesus went in a room, he always looked up the minority the weakest and the most disadvantaged. If he's got a woman in the room, he pays attention to the woman and ignores all the men. If there's a child in the room, he pays attention to the child. I believe if the room was loaded with wealthy, money-grabbing, upward mobile people, he'd find the poorest boy there. Jesus always went for the disenfranchised, disadvantaged, because he didn't come to save the haughty. There's few of them that will ever bow to be saved. 
And that's why he has to bring you to the end of your earthly wisdom to see that your own wisdom has made a mess out of your life. You know, when you're saying you're a self-made person, every self-made person is a mess. We are all God-made. My parents made me to start with. I don't know how you got your beginning, but I had to have parents. And everything after that, God has had to do or else it wouldn't get done. But here Paul is saying, I'm dealing with a church that uh, is using arrogance as their excuse that they can violate a brother. Let me give you some guidelines in dealing with other believers. Because in every church, we've got believers all the way. How many of you have been saved less than a year? Look at that. No one. Eight, nine o'clock service. Only the mature show up. (laughs) Okay, now, let's say if you've been saved three months, you'd be amazed at dress codes, what they could look like, especially when I started. There was no dress code. These guys are dressed up because, wow, it was out there. You didn't know. And, and ideas about everything. I, I had one, one guy say, I won't come to this church if you ever have an American flag in it. I said, why? He said, I was headed for Canada. I hate the Vietnam War, and I ain't in love with politics. Hmm. I didn't introduce him to Dave Smith or any of those guys in those days. Could have already been maimed for life. (laughs) You know? Attitudes, political, everywhere. Poverty. Um, I think... um, I, I, it was not a racist church from the beginning, but we didn't have, we didn't have diversity. But one thing about getting young people, uh, they weren't racist. That's been an older generation's monopoly for a long time. But you don't get many kids from Berkeley. They may strung, be strung out on the pot, but at least they're not uh, prejudiced. Uh, but you ought to ask yourself, in what you do in your life, If another believer was able to watch you, let me give you about seven E's. One first thing is, is it an excess? Is it something that uh, you might need to lay aside to be more effective? Now, like Paul said, I laid aside a wife. Is it evil to have a wife? No. But I, I, I didn't need it for the task I was called to and for the gift of celibacy that God gave me. But uh, anything going on in your life that, uh, are you obsessed with sports, obsessed with money, obsessed with this, obsessed, obsessed? Uh, What do you do in excess? Can you use it, or are you being consumed by it? So that that believer watching you says, you know, they say they love Jesus, but by the way they devote their time and by the use of their mouth, you think they love this more. Because what you talk about is what you love. Uh, Two, expedient. All things are lawful for me. That's what they said in 612. But not all things are profitable. Uh, I think your time, where do you spend your time? Is it okay to watch TV? I'll say it again. Is it okay to watch TV? We all got a TV, don't we? Is it expedient that you watch three hours a night? 
I'd say, you eat dinner. You've got to get the 5.30 or 6 o'clock news because you wouldn't know what's going on in the world because it, it just changes so much. If I hear one more oil commercial and BP one more time, what more? Get it cleaned up. That's my solution. <laughs> That's why I'm not running for office. Get it cleaned up. Um, it's okay to watch TV. We all do. Can, it, can you do it to the extent that it's not expedient? It's having no benefit on you? Maybe, and, and you're saying, boy, I'm such a terrible reader. I just had struggled with having devotions, and I've been getting to bed at 11.30. Have you ever found out that you ought to go to bed earlier if you want to get up earlier? That's a magical formula. I don't know. It just works. Uh, on Sunday night, I mean, or Saturday night, man, I, I'm hitting bed. I, I get up at 5 o'clock or so in the morning. So I, I know with me, Man, I got to be in bed by 9.30, 10, the wife and the kids and grand. Go ahead. I just lock the door, and Carolyn sleeps with the grandchildren. Um, <laughs> thirdly, emulation. Uh, the one who says he abides in Christ ought to walk as he walked, 1 John 2, 6. Uh, is this conduct worth uh, emulating? Are you, set, are you a model? And that's where we really have to watch ourselves in our homes, don't we? How we grouse. You know, we used to talk about people go to church and go home and have fried preacher for lunch, critique the sermon, critique everything. And then your kids grow up hating church, and you're blaming the church. No, they just got it from you. Because uh, your love for Christ or your lack of is contagious. They'll emulate, they'll emulate you. So is my conduct, uh, am I doing what Christ would do in this situation? Fourthly, example. Uh, he tells us in 1 Peter 5, 1 Timothy 4, what the church is looking for is example more than exhortation. Show me. You know, for instance, prayer. I could wax eloquent on prayer, get all of you guilty because you don't pray very much. Most of us don't. And get you guilty, and you say, preach right on. And if we call a prayer meeting that night, 95% uh, of you wouldn't make it. That's just the way it is. Let's don't lie. Let's don't flatter ourselves. Uh, when we do that National Day of Prayer here, we do good to get uh, 100 people out. But everybody say, we need to be praying. Do you? Are you an example of what you say you believe? Are you an example to that young believer? You know, I learned to pray was going to church and hanging out with people who prayed. They had prayer meetings before the service, after. And it's real simple. I just kneeled down as a young believer. I didn't know how to pray, not like them, because it was emotive and uh, very charged, that type thing. It wasn't this conversational breathing. It was real burning Pentecostal kind of prayer meetings. Uh, I, I couldn't keep up, but I caught on because I was around people who practiced their faith what kind of example are you? And I'd start with my children and work my way out, my neighbors. Uh, evangelism. Well, this hurt my testimony. I had an old friend of mine that I was wanting to get with, but him being a hell's angel, he wanted to meet me at a bar because we grew up together. And I said, well, I'll meet you there. I think my church can take it. The second thought, I thought, you know, is, what if I was trying to lead somebody to the Lord and they see me with a hell's angel guy that I grew up with. Says so the pastor now running with the gang. 
It, it didn't seem to fit, so we didn't meet. Uh, you know, uh, is my testimony going to be helped or not helped? You businessmen, I think this is one of your greatest struggles. Go on the road, and everybody on the uh, team is going to the bar, uh, and you, they want you there, of course, and, and the, the defiling effect being in that crowd and when marriage boundaries can cease, it's a hard thing being on the road and away from a home. It could be put in many compromising situations. I'd be thinking, can I have an impact on them for Christ, or will this compromise that as I'm trying to win them? Edification. Uh, will it build up the people who would see this conduct, or would it tear them down? I don't want to stumble even a young child let alone a weak believer. And by the way, let us never despise the weak. We've all lived in the area of the weak, and we probably are a lot weaker in many areas than we even realize. Finally, exaltation. Will it promote the glory of God or just satisfy what you want to do? Are you living for the glory of God? He said, whether you eat or drink, do it for the glory of God. So he's saying in this delicate matter of my social setting I'm saved out of, the taboos I grew up with, idolatry. I can't get around it. It's in my business world. It's at the schools of teaching about the idols of Greece. Uh, my friends, my family. Uh, and now I'm seeing the mature believers they claim to be, the, the, those who seem to know the most, they're doing it. They're going to the idol's temple. They're inviting me to come, but when I went, I sinned. I defiled myself. I made a great compromise. Paul says, your brother is more valuable than good meat, and for sure, you don't need to go to temples ever again because you've become the temple of God, and we no longer associate Christ with demons, and demons are found at the temple. Flee it, flee it. Has all kinds of implications for our setting. Can I hang out at this bar and have an impact? Can I hang out with this group? Can I hear this kind of music? Can I be in this kind of setting? Whatever. Measure your influence. Once you lose it, you seldom get it back. God bless you. I got to let you go to let them in. God bless you. <laughs>